God's word comes to us this morning from Judges chapter 4, beginning at the first verse, and we'll read the entire chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Chatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand? Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaananim which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, 
Give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jamin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jamin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jamin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our passage today is really a very high uh, form of the art of storytelling, though I did have to chuckle as we were going through when it says, drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, so he died. You didn't see that coming, that he was going to recover from a tent peg uh, through his head. Uh, We're considering the book of Judges this summer, and the book of Judges is a book which chronicles Israel's cycle of unfaithfulness and addiction to sin from the period of entering the promised land under Joshua, the land of Canaan, until the crowning of the first king, which will occur with Saul. And in our passage today, it's a little bit different because you don't have one particular hero. You really have three heroes or three people who are playing a judge-like role in the course of the story. You have two women and one man. We're going to start with Deborah, who's a prophetess. And judging Israel at that time, Barak is going to be the male military leader, leading the troops against the Canaanites. And then you have Jael, who finally takes the life of the Canaanite uh, general Sisera. I know it's a a bit of a long passage, and you've got a fair bit of Hebrew in there. It might have been a bit confusing, but we'll work it out as we proceed through the passage. We begin as we would expect to begin in verse 1. Again, uh, Israel is doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're, we're beginning to ask at this point, why? Israel, how do you find yourself back in this place again? Haven't we learned the lesson that it's better to side with Yahweh than to go after the Canaanites? But no, this is why we've said that Judges in some ways is very much a book of addiction and we are people of addiction and that we always are engaging in returning to sin, which we define as loving either a bad thing or loving a good thing too much. And this is what's going on for Israel as they are drawn to the Canaanite idols. And uh, what we read in uh, verse 3 is that Yabin is the king of Canaan, his general, his top military leader is Sisera. And Israel is existing under 20 years of cruel subjugation. And the language in verse 3 is very strong. It's been a brutal 20 years. And Yabin has not been a kind taskmaster to Israel. Boys and girls, you might imagine that, is, uh, that God has allowed a bully to beat up on Israel for 20 years on a daily basis to kind of bring them to their senses. And finally, they're going to cry out to the Lord, and then the Lord is going to deal with that bully. But it raises the question for Barak, and it raises the question for us, 
Will God truly fight for us? In that place where we feel like he's distant, right? Where even in the children's lesson, when Molly moved away, when we feel like God has moved away and we feel the tiger or some threat coming closer, do we wait and pause and trust that God will fight for us or do we reach for something that we think will accomplish what we need in that moment? Right? That's the big question that we're wrestling with today. And the way I'd like to do it, I'd like to organize our thoughts is through these three points. Number one, Barak's comforts. Number two, Yahweh the storm God. And number three, the seed of the woman. So one is Barak's comforts, two is Yahweh the storm God, and three, the seed of the woman. And boys and girls, I've got three questions for you that you can take up, that you can listen for in the course of the sermon. And these are great questions to discuss around lunch today. And they correspond to the three points we just mentioned. The questions are these. Number one, what did Barak trust more than God? What did Barak trust in more than God? Number two, who was called lightning? Who was called lightning? And number three, what promise does J.L. remind us of? What promise does J.L. remind us of? All right, are you ready? This really is an a, unbelievably, fantastically told story. So number one, Barak's comforts. Uh, by the time you get to verse four, you should be shocked. If you're an Israelite uh, reading this in ancient times, you suddenly out of nowhere, stumble upon someone who's judging Israel, who is a female, and is called a prophetess. This is a very rare occasion in the Old Testament scriptures. And so you know right off the bat that this story is going to be different. It's going to be surprising. Now, some commentators have taken the position that, well, if a woman's showing up, God is using the woman to shame the men for abdicating their responsibility. I can see how one might draw that conclusion, but I really think something much larger, more sophisticated, and more glorious is going on. And we'll unpack that as we proceed. Uh, I don't think that this is simply a means of God uh, shaming uh, men, but I know that's a common reading. And so I wanted to put it out there uh, even at the outset. Uh, Barak, as we've said, is going to be Israel's military leader. In verse 3, we've noted that the people finally cry out for help. And in verse 6, Deborah summons uh, Barak, presumably under the, the palm of Deborah. She takes up residence under a tree. Israel comes to her. She will arbitrate between them over different uh, disagreements. But she calls Barak to her. And what we learn in verse 6 is that Barak has already been commanded to go against Sisera. Right? This isn't an initial conversation. Notice how Deborah addresses Barak. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. In verse 6, we realize that God has already approached Barak and said, go get your men, go to Mount Tabor and the river Kishon, and I will deliver Sisera and the armies of Yabin into your hand. Well, what's Barak been doing? He's not been being faithful. You have Deborah kind of calling him out. And we see more of Barak's heart in verse 8. After Deborah calls him out, he says, If you will go with me, 
I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Hmm. I don't remember God adding a clause to his command to Barak to go fight against the Canaanites. But now Barak says, actually, I'm not that concerned about Yahweh's presence. I would prefer to have Deborah's presence. In other words, we asked at the beginning, what does Barak trust? And he's trusting more in Deborah, this earthly figure, than in the promise and presence of Yahweh himself. Barak prefers an earthly comfort in the middle of his struggle than actually believing and resting upon the promise of God. And so how do you prefer earthly comfort to divine promise? We can be sympathetic with Barak, I think. It's been 20 years of cruel subjugation. If you go 20 years and feel like God is pretty absent, but then he suddenly shows up and says, yeah, what I'd like you to do today is lead Israel in war against the Canaanites that have you under their thumb. You might be like, yeah, okay, maybe. Where have you been for 20 years? But uh, Barak's vision, like ours so often, is, is small. It's myopic. He can't see the big picture. He doesn't understand that the, the subjugation has been part of the road of repentance so that Israel would finally cry out again to God. And so instead of trusting in Yahweh, he trusts in Deborah. Again, the question to you is, how do you trust in earthly comforts or turn to something that you think gets the job done in an earthly sphere rather than relying on the promises of God? If that sounds abstract... You're commanded to love your enemies. If the opportunity presents itself, is it more comfortable for you to gossip about the person that offended you than to actually love them? It's an example of saying, I don't really care what God's promise or command is. I'm more interested in the comfort that I receive in the moment of expressing contempt toward that person in the act of gossip. You're commanded to be generous towards those who are in need. Well, Does that come after the house remodeling and the new car? Are there earthly comforts that take precedence over what you know it means to be obedient to the promises of God? How are you preferring earthly comforts to heavenly promises? For me, a great example from a great piece of literature has always been Boromir in The Lord of the Rings. Some of you, probably most of you, many, some, Some of you are familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings, whether by the book or the movie. It's Tolkien's great work. And so in the Lord of the Rings, all right, uh, this is your uh, two-minute quick version of of the plot line. The Dark Lord Sauron made a ring that contains immense power, an immense portion of his power, and he loses that ring, so his power is compromised. He's defeated at a certain point in ancient Middle-earth history. Fast forward thousands of years, the ring has been found by a hobbit, And a council is called to decide what needs to be done with the ring to prevent Sauron from subjugating all of Middle-earth in darkness. And you've got the best of the best at the council, mostly. There are a few missing. um, But you've got Elrond, right? You've got Gandalf, and everyone collaborates. And they say, listen, the best way forward is for the hobbit to carry the ring to Mount Doom and destroy it. Because hobbits, even though they're the least impressive creature on the face of Middle-earth, they're also least affected by the power of the ring. There's something about their their simplicity that they're not drawn to the corrupting power of the ring. All well and good. So uh, the the hobbit's going to carry the ring to destroy it. There's a band of brothers, so to speak, that will accompany him on this journey. 
And Boromir is of the race of men. And he's one of the individuals. And over time, he thinks more and more to himself, you know, we've got this ring of immense power. I know that the divine-like voice of Gandalf and Elrond have said, this is the best way forward. But doesn't it make more sense to wield the power of the ring and to raise an army and to use it to destroy Sauron? This is how he begins to justify his thinking. And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. It is a gift, I say, a gift to the foes of Mordor. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. What could not a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do? Or if he refuses, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor, and all men would flock to my banner. Do you hear brilliantly, as Tolkien does it, how his thinking begins to evolve, and he begins to justify the use of the ring, and as he justifies the use of the ring, his role in the process becomes more and more prominent. Yeah, Aragorn should do it, but if he don't, it doesn't, I will. And what if in the end I have command and all banners flock to me? Because Boromir is corrupted by an earthly comfort, by a notion of, he says, okay, I get it, Elrond, Gandalf, you're really gifted and smart and probably know the best course here, but this way seems a lot more doable and easy and more satisfying to me. Because I'm at the center and I will receive more power. And this hobbit isn't going to be the hero. I mean, look at him. And over all kinds of reasons not to go down the path that the wisest have prescribed and to short circuit that path. And the reason that's an important example to me is I know in my mind and heart, which is deceitfully wicked, over and over again, I will come up with justifications of why the earthly path or the earthly comfort that I want to pursue is okay. It's not going to compromise anything. It's going to get the ultimate goal done. And ultimately, it devours us because it's not the promise of God and it's not waiting upon him to fulfill the promises as he deems they should be fulfilled. And just like Boromir, who meets an early end in death because of the road he's chosen, right? we move towards, we move towards Canaan and we move towards death when we opt to use the ring or opt to reach for earthly comforts rather than to wait on the promises of God. If only Barak had trusted. If only Barak had obeyed the first time. If only Barak had said, okay, Deborah, you've got me. I should have gone. I'm sorry. You're saying Yahweh's going to be with me? Let's go. But he doesn't. Right? For, For Barak, his ring is Deborah. He says, I'm only going to go, Deborah, if you go. And this will cost Brock. Look at verse 9. Deborah says to him, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. If we recognize ourselves in the character of Brock, if we recognize that we are often given to pursue earthly means to accomplish divine ends, then how do we find a better way forward? How do we not make the mistake of Brock? Now this brings us to point two, which is Yahweh, the storm god. So Deborah says, okay, I'll go. And Barak says, great. And they gather the troops and they go to Mount Tabor and the river Kishon. And uh, we don't get very much about the battle. If you look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, 
And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Okay, interestingly, it doesn't tell us anything about what Deborah or Barak did. It says that God defeated the army and uh, routed them by the edge of the sword, his sword. But how? Well, interestingly, uh, chapter 5 of Judges is called the Song of Deborah and Barak. It's a, it's a piece of poetry, a, a literal song that was composed to commemorate this battle. And the song was almost certainly written earlier than the historical narrative, in the sense that this happened, someone composed a song about it, and then someone wrote down after the song the historical narrative. And you actually get a few more bits of information in the song than you do in the historical narrative in chapter 4. And one of those bits occurs in verse 21 of chapter 5 which it says, the torrent Kishon swept away, swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Now there are a few elements in chapter 5 that seem to indicate that what happened is that God brought a great storm. And the great storm caused the river Kishon to flash flood, which entrapped the army of Sisera. Boys and girls, what's the last thing you want to be in in a flash flood? If a river is rising quickly and you're in the ancient world, the last thing you want to be in is an iron chariot, right? Which is what Sisera's army is mostly composed of. So imagine chariots sinking down in the mud, wheels being caked with mud, panic as the river is rising, people can't move, they don't know what to do. And this is how God defeats the army. He takes the very strength. Notice how it keeps telling us that Sisera has 900 iron chariots. Right? That's really impressive. It's a huge force and it's technologically advanced. And God makes it Sisera's greatest weakness. He defeats him easily because the chariots themselves become a liability. Now this is the really great part, as if that wasn't great enough. Right? Yahweh is defeating the Canaanites by bringing a great storm. Not only does he bring a great storm, but do you know what Barak means in Hebrew? Lightning. So Yahweh has come against the people who worship Baal, the Stormbringer. And he has chosen to defeat them by bringing a storm and using the agent of leadership in his army who is named Lightning. It is not so subtle a message to the Canaanites. Baal has been caught with his pants down. And it's not just a reckoning between the two forces and a freeing of the people of Israel, but remember how we started this series? We said one of the questions for Israel is, We know Yahweh controls history, but will Yahweh control the weather? And the reason that's an important question is because as Israel enters the promised land, they're becoming an agrarian people. And so you better believe that they have new concerns about whether it's going to rain or whether there's going to be a drought, right? And God just answered that question in a big way and said, not only do I control the weather, but there is no storm God except for me. I am the storm bringer. And he frees Israel through this massively profound, at least for the context, theological uh, statement. It reminds us that God is always victorious. Deborah couldn't win the day for Barak. Only God could if Barak had only trusted. What does that trusting look like? I mean, for us today, right? we can see trusting on the part of Deborah and Jael in the context of this story, but we're a long way removed from being called out to battle, from being called out to pick up a sword and assemble at a mountain and face of people who are oppressing us. 
So what do we, how do we take what we learn in this passage and apply it, work it into our hearts and our lives? I think a great example of someone who trusts and decides to wait on the promises of God is Manute Bull. Now, some of you may remember that Manute Bull was a professional basketball player in the NBA. He died in 2010 at the age of 47. He was kind of a sight to behold. He did not possess great athletic talent. What he possessed was amazing height. He was over 7'7", only 225 pounds. So he was this very, very tall, very, very lanky person. When you saw him, you thought, that doesn't quite look right. And even though he didn't uh, possess a great deal of athletic ability, what he could do is stand and put his arms up. He had a massive wingspan and would block many shots because he towered over the other players in the NBA. Manute Bull uh, made $6 million while he played in the NBA, and he spent almost all of that money on helping and providing for Sudanese refugees, which is where he was from. And the reason that Manute Bull did that was because he was a devout Christian. And he believed that he owed his life to Christ, and he wanted nothing more than to allow his life and his resources to be poured out on the behalf of others. He was someone that trusted that God has made promises that he has established a kingdom, and the boundaries of that kingdom are being extended, and he saw his role as being part of the extension of the boundaries of those kingdom, of, of God's kingdom. Right? He's a picture to us of someone who truly says, I trust in the promises of God, and I order my life around those promises. What's really fantastic Um, Well, at the time, someone tweeted this at the time of his death. Most NBA cats go broke on cars, jewelry, and groupies. Manute Bull went broke building hospitals. Now, eventually he couldn't play. His contract wasn't renewed in the NBA, but he still felt this desperate call to help the Sudanese, so he made himself kind of a clown. Uh, People wanted to see him doing funny things, and so he signed contracts to be a horse jockey and to be a hockey player because people thought it was funny to see him fall down on ice skates. And he signed up to uh, fight uh, the refrigerator Perry, right? the lineman from the Chicago Bears who weighed in at like 350 pounds. Right? Not for real, all for a spectacle. Right? But he was trying to continue to make money so that he could fund what the work that he was involved uh, in in uh, the Sudan, where he eventually would catch a skin disease Uh, which contributed to his early death. It's a picture of someone, for me, uh, who understands the promises of God and throws in with those promises and isn't isn't thinking, oh, I want this earthly comfort or I want to make sure I have this. It's somebody who truly, I trust entirely on the word and promise of God. Therefore, my life is going to look radically different. Yahweh is the only one who brings the storm and I'm going to throw in with him is what... I think Manute Bull would say. All right, well, if Yahweh is the storm bringer, this is all well and good, but we still have an unresolved story. We still got Sisera on the run. If you remember, even though the army's been defeated, Sisera takes off on foot. He must have been quite a runner. And uh, we haven't talked about JL yet, the woman who's going to take Sisera out. So this brings us to point three the seed of the woman. Sisera is running. Man, he's running fast, right? The whole Israelite army is behind him. He's he's lost his army in a flood. He's got to be scared out of his mind, and he runs to the tent of Hebar the Kenite. Now, this gets, 
I don't, I really, I've struggled with how much detail to bog you down with, but this is a really neat touch in the story, is that the Kenites are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, uh, who's sometimes called Jethro and sometimes called um, Hadad or Habor. It's in the passage. And they've, they've always lived close to Israel and have usually had a very good relationship. But we're told that Heber, the wife of J, uh, husband of Jael, has broken away. They've moved off to live by themselves. And we also know that Heber is a smith. And we know that uh, he's thrown in with Yabin and with Sisera. And the picture that we get is Heber uh, has decided that there's lots of work for him in Canaan because of all the iron chariots, right? He works with metal. And so he's moved away to make a profit. And Sisera comes running to the tent. He probably knows well of uh, Heber the Kenite, sees Jael, is assured that he'll have a kind of safe passage into the tent and moves uh, into the tent. Jael says, you can rest. And he's got to be exhausted. He's lost a battle. He's been running for who knows how far. And now he's got a moment to rest. He lays down. He says, cover me up. Don't let anybody know that I'm here. Uh, give me some water. Uh, Jael says, I'll do better. I'll give you milk to make you sleepy. And he goes to sleep. And Jael takes that opportunity to uh, defeat the enemy of uh, Israel. It's a pretty interesting, um, just as, well, that's just gross. Never mind. There's some really interesting aspects in the Hebrew about the actual death of, uh, of Sisera, but since we have a very mixed generational audience, we'll skip that. And move on to the notion that Jael, right, is the one who gains the glory for killing Sisera. Now, What's fascinating about this occasion and what it's going to start in the book of Judges is that you've been running along through the Old Testament canon and suddenly you come to a woman who conquers a man by striking his head and this is the first of three times it will happen in the book of Judges. The next one will be Abimelech who is Gideon's son who becomes a corrupt judge and a woman will drop a millstone from a tower on his head. And the third will be Delilah who will take out Samson by taking a knife or scissors to his hair. Now, if you're an Israelite, and really this should be true for us, but it's frankly not because we don't know our Bibles that well. But if you're reading along the Bible, and all of a sudden you have three women take out three male leaders by striking their head, right? Genesis 3.15 should go off immediately in your mind. That there's a promise that God has made at the very beginning, right? That the seed of the women, of the woman, will crush the seed of the serpent, Right, will bruise his head. Right? The children of the serpent are going to reach out and try to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that's the best they'll be able to do is bruise uh, the heel. It's the seed of the woman who will actually crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, ultimately, of course, this is going to be fulfilled in Christ crushing Satan. But it's being fulfilled in a smaller way, in a way that reminds us that God is being faithful to his promises when women are raised up to conquer those who are becoming like the children of the serpent. Now, one, the first male, our male here, Sisera, is a pagan. He's a Canaanite. The next two will be Israelites. But one of the messages that uh, Judges is communicating is that as the people of Israel move towards Canaan, as they become Canaanized, they become serpentized. They become like the children, uh, the seed of the serpent. And in so doing they become liable to judgment. And so God raises up women that will uh, carry that out as a reminder of uh, this promise. 
And so as I said earlier, I don't think what's going on here is so much a shaming of men that women leaders are being raised up, but more it's a dramatic reiteration of God's promise in which God says, you know what, men of Israel, if you're not going to be faithful and carry the day, then I'll raise up women. And you know what, women, if you're not going to be faithful, then I'll raise up children. And if children, you're not going to be faithful, then I'll raise up trees and rocks. And is this not exactly what Jesus says as he enters Jerusalem? And the religious leaders say, get these people to stop crying out, Hosanna in the highest. And what does he say? I could do that. And then the rocks would cry out. Because every inch of this place is mine. And my promises will come true, whether you participate in faithfulness or not. Israel is becoming Canaanized and serpentized by God, but God remains faithful to his promises. The promise is not in question, and in our passage today, Deborah and Jael have trusted, but Barak did not. Which brings us back to remind ourselves of the consequences of not trusting. Which isn't necessarily that we will be, it's not at all that we'll be cast out, but that we won't participate in the glory that we're intended to participate in. Right? Let's close by looking at verse 9. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera in the hand of a woman. Will your road lead to glory? The glory that God intends for you to participate in the extension of his kingdom. That depends on whether or not you are willing to trust in Yahweh as the one who fights for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have always been true to your promises. Your promise that the seed of the serpent uh, will ultimately be crushed. uh, That the seed of the woman will be triumphant. uh, That you have reminded, uh, uh, reminded us of this truth in the midst of this story. You've helped us to look forward and backward to Christ. And we celebrate his victory. And ask that you would give us faith and trust to follow you. Whatever the path you give us to walk down, may it be one that is characterized by our trust in your promises rather than our desire for earthly comfort or for earthly satisfaction. We ask humbly that you would grow us up in this. In Christ's name, amen.